continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossian church this morning. We'll be looking at verses 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got several in the back, and we'd love to give you one so you can follow along. And we would love for you to take that home as well. So just raise your hand real quick. If you don't have a Bible, Craig can grab one, and we'll just slip that into your hands as we're turning here to Colossians chapter 4. Let's read our text. It's a brief text this morning, just verses 5 and 6, and then we'll pray together. Colossians 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Lord, as we've already sung this morning, we come to you thankful for your grace. We come to you confident that the shed blood of Jesus is what has secured our forgiveness, our salvation, And what has declared the depth of your love for us. So we come not as a people who need to earn grace, who need to earn your love, or somehow try to deserve your blessings. We come as a people who have already received everything through Christ. So God, we want to please you with our lives. We want to become more like the Jesus that we follow, the one who has saved us by his blood. So Lord, speak to us today so that we can grow, so that we can change, so that we can faithfully display your supremacy In this world, we pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. How many of you guys have ever had to fill out an insurance application? I have. It seems like I do almost every year, have to reapply and fill out an insurance application. If you do, you know it asks you a million questions, right? And it'll ask you to check, in one part of that application, it'll ask you to check a box that sort of describes, you know, who and what you are. It'll ask you questions about things like your age. And you can't lie, even if you like to sometimes pretend you're maybe a decade younger than you really are. It'll ask you about your age. It'll ask you if you're male or female. It'll ask you personal things like your income level. And it'll ask you about your ethnicity. It'll ask you about all sorts of things. But in God's economy, there's only two boxes. And it's not ethnic, economic, cultural, or otherworldly categories. In chapter 3, verse 11 Paul has already told us that here, referring to within the church, among the redeemed, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says that because of Christ, those old ways of categorizing people are gone. And Paul's only two categories that he uses are insiders and outsiders. And so he tells us in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Paul understands that there's two two types of people in the world, those who are part of the body of Christ and those who aren't. Those who have been made new, those who've been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus, by God's grace, those who've been rescued from the domain of darkness, as he told us in chapter one, and those who haven't. There's those who know Christ personally and savingly, and then there's those who don't. Although our world today is quick to assign various identities and categories, friends, these are the only two that matter. And they're the ones that we ought to see as being most significant in every day of our lives. So that brings up a question. How do we relate to those who are outsiders? How do you think that we ought to relate to the world? Whether intentionally or subconsciously, Christians often tend to take one of three approaches when it comes to how we relate to 
outsiders. One way that Christians and churches even tend to relate to the world is to fearfully withdraw. You could call this segregation in a spiritual sense, and even isolation. We retreat into our safe bubble where we interact with and speak to outsiders at the the least amount possible. But friends, this is not only ineffective in terms of advancing the gospel, it's actually impossible to completely withdraw from the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells believers in the church not to associate with sexually immoral people, but then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He said, I'm not talking about that. That's literally impossible. So we're not called to withdraw fearfully from the world. That's not our call. That's the track that some people tend to take. But there's another ditch you can fall into, and that is friendship with the world. Instead of segregation or isolation, you could call this capitulation being absorbed into the world so that we are just like those who are, spiritually speaking, outsiders. But this is also ineffective in advancing the gospel because when that happens, when we become just like those who are outside, we lose our distinctiveness and we appear to the world to have literally nothing to offer them that they don't already have. And the bottom line is that such absorption into the world, to be just like them, is sin. James chapter 4 verse 4 says this. Here's a real popular verse that you probably won't hear on Christian radio this week. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's very direct and it's very serious. If we love what the world loves, if we fit in with the world at every level and get caught up in going with the flow and doing the things the world does in the same way that the world does it, the Bible says this is spiritual adultery. It's picking sides, and it's picking the wrong side. It's picking the side that is at enmity with God. So we cannot simply get sucked into being just like the world and doing exactly what the world does in the same way that the world does it. But unfortunately, that's a a trap that many Christians and churches fall into. So there's fearful withdrawal, and then you could say there's foolish sort of absorption into the world, friendship with the world. But I want to present to you today a third way, and that would be wise engagement with the world. So if the first tendency would would be segregation, and the second would be capitulation, you could call this infiltration. I don't usually make words match up like that. Some of you guys that I talk with about preaching know that I tend to avoid alliteration, but it worked today. So, and I know Will likes to write down outlines. So that's for you, Will. You can write, write those down. Infiltration. We are to remain distinct, but to represent Christ and proclaim him to all. And that's really what Paul is getting at here in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul urges us to faithfully engage with the world around us. As those who are followers of Christ, we have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to live in a certain kind of way. Because our behavior, our actions, our choices, our words, they represent Christ and have the ability to positively or negatively impact those who are around us. Here's the reality. Some of your coworkers your neighbors, your classmates, your friends, they may never read the Bible. 
And they may never sit and listen to a sermon or the teaching of Scripture. But they do interact with you. And the opinion that outsiders have of Christ and his gospel will be shaped in part by how you and I live our lives. The main idea of this text this morning is this. We must demonstrate the supremacy of Christ in the way that we relate, we relate to outsiders. That's our responsibility. So the question arises, so what does that look like? Well, this text gives us three descriptions of faithful Christian behavior in the world. And there's a lot we could say about this. There's a lot we could say about how we relate to the world and what our testimony is to be and how to engage people with the gospel. But I want to look very simply and narrowly at the things Paul lays out here in Colossians 4, 5 through 6. The first description that we find is that faithful Christian conduct requires wisdom. It requires wisdom. If we're going to be faithful and we're going to conduct ourselves faithfully in the world, in in the way that we relate to outsiders, it requires wisdom. Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The term walk here simply refers to how you live your life. And it's the third time that Paul has used this language to describe how we live. In Colossians 1 verse 10, Paul says that he prayed for these people. And do you know what he prayed for them? Do you know what was a burden on on Paul's heart? What was important to him that he felt was an urgent priority? He says he prayed that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It matters how we live. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul has exhorted us, in light of the doctrinal truths he laid out, the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of his work, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. If we have received Christ, if we've trusted in his finished work on the cross, if we've embraced him as our Lord, bowed our knee to his authority, then we ought to live in a way that reflects that. That's been a theme throughout this book. And so now a third time he tells us how we should walk. Not only in a manner worthy of the Lord, not only walking in him, dependent on him, but we're to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. This means that our life is to be guided by, to be controlled by wisdom. And we find in this verse a key description of wisdom, something that energizes and leads to wisdom. The wise person, Paul says, will be sensitive to the reality of time. Look what he says. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And then he sort of explains what he means by that. Making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. Some of you may have the the King James Version in your lap, and it'll say redeeming the time which really gets at the idea behind this word. It's a a financial term that has the idea of buying something up to redeem. And the ESV brings out the sense of it, making the best use, but it really is an idea of purchase, to purchase and to buy back every moment so that it can be used intentionally. The word for time here is not the word for chronological time, but the word for a point in time. Basically, Paul's saying that every moment matters. And so just like a real estate investor will buy up a piece of land when it comes available because he's wise and he knows that that's strategically going to be valuable and meaningful, so he's always paying attention to the market, we are to have the same perspective on time, to take advantage of every opportunity, every moment, every season of life, because the reality is that we have a limited amount of time here on this earth, and it goes by so fast. 
And friends, every moment matters. Every moment matters. Every moment has been given to us by God, and every moment is to be stewarded because it's been entrusted to us to be used for God and his glory. This means we are to have a sense of urgency as we interact with the world. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders because every moment, every interaction matters. We're given a limited amount of opportunities to represent Christ and to serve him. So there's a strong motive here to be wise in our conduct, not to foolishly miss opportunities, not to foolishly waste our time. The foolish person is oblivious to this reality or just doesn't care, one of the two. But the wise person wants to maximize each and every opportunity and so carefully considers how every action, every response, every decision can make a difference in how we represent Christ and how we engage with those who are outsiders, those who don't know him, those who don't understand the gospel, those who have not been set free from their sins. Our obligation is to glorify our Savior and to display him to the world. And this requires wisdom. Psalm 90 verse 12, the psalmist prays a prayer that we would do well to pray. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And really, this wisdom is concerned most with Christ's reputation and with getting the message of Christ out. If you remember what we talked about last week, if you look just the verse previous to this, the two verses previous to this, Paul has said, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul asked that they would pray for the ministry of the gospel. But then he flips it to not just what he's responsible to do, but what they are responsible to do. He's concerned not only with his witness while he's imprisoned in Rome, but with their witness publicly there in Colossae. You see, our goal and Paul's is to get the gospel out explicitly. And good behavior is important, but good behavior isn't everything. Good behavior can't save a sinner. But the message of the gospel points people to the Christ who is everything and the Christ who can save sinners. So as we wisely engage with the world, we want to represent Christ and we want to proclaim Christ. So as we think about wisdom, how should we think about wise engagement? Because not every interaction we have is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. But every interaction we have with unbelievers, with outsiders, does need to be marked by wisdom. Well, I think wisdom means, in a negative sense that we don't want to give the world a reason to reject us or our message. We don't want to give them a reason to reject us or our message. In Titus chapter 2, verse 5, Paul urges believing women in the church to be self-controlled, pure, working hard in their homes, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Paul says our conduct, our behavior, can make... Christ and his gospel look bad, and we don't want to do that. In Titus 2, verse 8, he urged Titus towards sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The reality is the world may say accusatory things and, and um, uh, condemning things towards us, but we don't want those things to stick. We don't want to give them a reason to reject us or our message. So that's in a negative sense, we don't want to do that. And in a positive sense, we want to do the opposite. We want to actually make the gospel attractive. 
Paul urged servants in Titus 2, verse 10, to not steal, not to be pilfering, but instead to show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Think about that. Does your life, the way that you interact with unbelievers, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? As we consider our responsibility and the opportunity we have, we want to be wise in how we conduct ourselves towards outsiders to adorn the doctrine of God. We want to be wise. So what does wisdom not mean? I want to clarify this real quick because sometimes people will make certain choices or behave in certain ways that's actually disobedient to God, and they'll cloak it with the language of wisdom. Well, you know what? It just wouldn't be wise for us to say this particular thing, given the cultural climate of our society. Well, let me just clarify what wisdom does not mean. Wisdom does not mean, number one, that we avoid all conflict. It does not mean that. It just means that we avoid unnecessary conflict. If you're going to be wise, as we'll see in a moment, it means that you fear God. If you fear God, it means that you will follow him and you'll be faithful to his truth, which means that you cannot approve of that which God condemns. So some people will say, well, let's be wise and let's not confront specific sins or, or let's not argue over this particular point of doctrine. Let's be wise and just smooth all this over because that's going to be the most appealing to other people. But wisdom does not mean we avoid all conflict, but it does mean we avoid unnecessary conflict. There are certain battles that do not need to be fought at every given moment in every certain context. I think Jesus is a great example of this. Sometimes he just walks away. Other times he addresses the issue. What makes the difference? Wisdom. Wisdom. I was talking with a brother here in the congregation this morning. There's that text in Proverbs where in one verse, I believe it's in chapter 24, it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Why? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. But there's another verse right next to it that says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Well, how do you know which is it? How do you know when to engage and have some conflict? And how do you know when to abstain? Wisdom is what makes all the difference in the world. But don't avoid all conflict and attribute it to wisdom because we may have to do that sometimes. But wisdom will help us to avoid unnecessary conflict. Secondly, wisdom doesn't mean that we avoid all offense. It just means that we avoid needless offense. The gospel is offensive, period. To tell people that they're sinners and there's an eternal hell for all who reject Christ, that is going to be offensive. But we are called to bear the offense of the gospel and to share the good news, which presupposes some bad news. So we can't say that it's wisdom for us to avoid sticky topics and avoid offense. Third, wisdom doesn't mean that we avoid all risk. It just means that we avoid risk that's not in keeping with God's will. You know, faith and obedience, biblically speaking, is going to look risky to many people. Do you think it seemed risky for Peter to step out of the boat and start walking on the water? That'd be risky for you and me to do, but he had a clear command from Christ. He said, Peter, come out here. And so he did. Obedience to Christ and faith in Christ is never risky. But wisdom will help us to avoid some risks that are foolish. How do we know the difference? Again, it's wisdom. It's going back to God's word to understand God's will. So don't think that avoiding all risk somehow means you're being wise. It just means that we avoid risks that are not in keeping with God's will. And finally, and this sort of goes along with, with all of these clarifications, but walking in wisdom doesn't mean that our practice of wisdom will always be recognized as wisdom by the world. You know, we believe in a Bible that says the first will be last and the last will be first. 
We believe in the gospel that tells us that in losing our lives, we save them. And this is all upside down and backwards to the world. We preach a Messiah who was crucified and rose again. And to some, that's going to be a stumbling block. To others, it will be foolishness. But don't let that keep you from the pursuit and practice of true biblical wisdom. The world may laugh at us and tell us we're fools, but we want to define wisdom biblically. So walk in wisdom. But that doesn't mean we avoid all conflict, that we avoid all offense, that we avoid all risk, and that the world will always think we're being wise. Just want to clarify that. Wisdom, how can we grow in true wisdom? How do we get to the kind of wisdom that we must demonstrate? Well, I want to give you three quick steps. They're not exhaustive, but just a couple thoughts. If you want to grow in wisdom, you say, okay, I want to do this. I want to engage wisely with the people around me, but I need more. I need more. Well, first of all, fear the Lord. That's how you can grow in wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Think about your own life. Think about maybe some foolish choices you've made in the past. How much of our foolish behavior comes from simply forgetting God and just getting swept up in the moment? If you and I were to grow in having a constant awareness of God, coupled with a proper fear of him that marvels at his holiness and treasures his mercy, that's going to change the way we behave, isn't it? It's going to lead to wisdom. If you want to grow in wisdom, fear the Lord. The fear of man, on the other hand, leads to so much foolishness. And whether you call it peer pressure, whether you call it um, fear of public shame or rejection, whether you call it craving approval or just wanting acceptance from others, that sort of attitude reveals a lack of wisdom. It's a failure to fear God, and it leads to trouble. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. So if we're going to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, we need to fear the Lord and not fear man. That is foundational. We see a great example of this in Paul. He wasn't afraid of men, and that's why he's in prison. Remember, he says that he's in prison. Why? Because he's been preaching the gospel. And does that stop him? No. In prison, he prays, and he asks them to pray that he would have more opportunities to keep doing the same thing. So Paul's a great example here of fearing God. His, his fear, his concern, is not that he would be persecuted for preaching Christ. His concern is that he would be faithful to discharge his God-given duty as he ought. He says, pray that I would make it clear as I ought to speak. Who's telling Paul that he needs to make it clear? God. And that's weighing on him. That's why he says, pray for me. Pray for me that I'll be able to do what God wants me to do. That's what drove Paul, not the fear of man, but the fear of God, and it ought to drive us as well. So fear the Lord. Secondly, feast on the word. Psalm 19.7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you want to be wise and grow in wisdom, you need to get in this book. You need to understand the truth of Scripture because it has the power to make a simple person wise. The Lord promises wisdom to all who ask. James tells us we can pray and that God delights to give wisdom liberally. But God doesn't just zap us with like this magic wisdom, you know, beam. And all of a sudden somebody who is a fool one minute is super wise the next minute. God imparts wisdom to us when we seek it, when we pray for it. And he does it by his spirit through his word. You cannot be wise 
apart from the understanding and application of the truth of Scripture. It just won't happen. So if you fear the Lord, you're going to take seriously what he says. And if you take seriously what he says, you're going to study it. You're going to read it until it becomes second nature, until it forms your attitudes, until it, it even affects your knee-jerk reactions to things. We want to be people of the word. So as you pray for wisdom, open your Bible and read it expectantly that God will make you wise through the study of Scripture. So we need to fear the Lord and feast on the word. And third, we need to focus on Christ if we want to be wise. I love the example of Jesus. Um, Michael uh, gave us an overview this morning of the Gospel of Mark. And I was reminded about all the different kinds of interactions Jesus had with different people. He is an example of perfect wisdom because ultimately the Bible tells us that wisdom is bound up in the person of Christ. We've seen this in Colossians. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to be wise, focus on on Christ. Seek him. Know him. Seek to become like him. Seek to understand who he is and what he has accomplished. Seek to understand his glory, his person, his character, his teaching. As we focus on Christ, we are made wise. 1 Corinthians 1 24 says that to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So as we draw near to Christ, we draw near to wisdom incarnate. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul's telling us that as we look to Christ, as we gaze upon Christ, as we worship Christ, as we seek to know Christ, you know what happens? We actually start to become more and more like him. Degree by degree, little by little. And this is the work of the Spirit in us to make us like Christ as we gaze upon him, as we behold him with this unveiled face. So if we're going to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, we probably need to grow in wisdom. And that happens when we fear the Lord, when we seek him in the word, and when we focus on Christ. This wisdom is going to be critical to making sure that our lives display the supremacy of Christ to outsiders, making the most of every opportunity to display Christ, to declare Christ. But Paul gives us a second description of behavior in the world that demonstrates the supremacy of Christ. He says we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then in verse 6, he says, let your speech always be gracious. So faithful Christian conduct requires gracious speech. It requires gracious speech. Paul reminds us that our words matter. How you talk and what you say matter. In fact, our words will be considered as key evidence on the day of judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Our words matter. And Paul says that our words must be gracious. They're to be gracious, first of all, in their quality, what they're like, and secondly, gracious in their content. What it is that we're saying needs to be gracious. Both are important. To be gracious in quality means that our speech is to be pleasant. It is to be kind. It is to be humble. It is to be patient. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as fits the occasion. There's wisdom there, fitting the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech is to be gracious in its quality, in its nature. Even when we're seeking to persuade outsiders of the truth, when we're engaging unbelievers with the gospel, our speech must be gracious. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says this. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's the supremacy of Christ in our own hearts. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So he's talking about our engagements with outsiders. But notice what Peter says. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. When we're giving a reason for the hope that is within us, when we're sharing with people about who Christ is and what he has done, we are to do so with gentleness and respect. We're to be gracious even when we engage in conflict, even when we confront error. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The Lord's servant, speaking of leaders in the church, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we're gracious when we share the gospel. We're even gracious when we confront error in the church. We do it with kindness and with gentleness. Our words need to be gracious in quality, but they also need to be gracious in content. It's not enough just to say things nicely. We need to speak words that actually convey grace, to speak of Christ and his gospel so that grace is experienced by the hearer. I love how Paul describes the gospel itself. Look back in Colossians 1 verse 6. He's he's praising God that they believed in the gospel, and he describes this message. He says, this gospel that has come to you As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul describes the gospel message itself as being the grace of God in truth. The very message that we convey is grace. It's grace. It's the truth about Christ John 1 tells us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There is no more gracious thing that you can say or speak than to tell people of Christ, who is grace and truth. So both in what we say and in how we say it, we want grace to color everything from start to finish. So let me ask you, does your speech communicate grace at work? When you're talking maybe to a waiter at a restaurant who hasn't filled up your glass in a while? What about when you discuss politics with your extended family? Step on some toes here. Thanksgiving's coming up. Christmas is coming up. And so is an election year, okay? Some of you are shaking your head. You're already bracing yourself for what's to come. Our words must be gracious. Even when we disagree, even when we seek to confront error, there needs to be grace. What about when you send an email? Do you have, like, computer, you know, keyboard warrior tone and, like, face-to-face tone that's different? What about when you send a text or when you post something online? Grace needs to color all of our communication. So if you need to grow in this area of gracious speech, I want you to consider something that you actually need to do more than just change what you type or what you say. Please consider that the issue of gracious speech goes a lot deeper than simply our words. Gracious speech presupposes a gracious heart, 
a gracious spirit, a gracious attitude. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason some of us don't speak graciously is because we have a critical spirit, because we have pride in our hearts, because we're angry, because we're bitter and resentful. So if you have a hard time with your speech, it's not just about biting your tongue. You can bite your tongue all you want. You'll just have blood in your mouth, but still have ugly sin bubbling up in your heart. So to change our speech, we must address the issue at the level of the heart. We need to cultivate a heart of humility and love and grow in our desire to bless and encourage and edify others so that the speech that flows from our mouth is honoring to God and edifying to others so that we rightly represent Christ and we rightly communicate Christ to others. If there's no change in your heart, it will be incredibly difficult to control your tongue. Christians who are rude, Christians who are hostile in their speech, Christians who are overly critical and harsh and ungracious are failing to demonstrate the supremacy of Christ, failing to live in a way that's mindful of his grace towards us, failing to live in a way that's submitted to his commands to us, failing to live in a way that is patterned after his example for us. Failing to live in a way that's growing more and more into an accurate reflection of his gracious character. If Christ is supreme in your heart and in your life, it's going to affect the mentality that you have in your heart and it's going to affect the way that you speak. And that's going to have an impact on outsiders. Faithful Christian conduct requires gracious speech. But Paul gives us a third description of Faithful conduct in the world. Faithful Christian conduct requires, third, speech that is made potent by the gospel. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love how Paul pairs salty right there side by side with gracious. He's showing us that gracious speech does not mean that there's no flavor. It does not mean that there's no zing. Or that even our words at times might have a serrated edge to them. Our words, if conveying the truth in the message of grace, the gospel, ought to have an effect on the world around us. You know, salt in a wound can sting, can't it? But salt in food can also preserve and hold off corruption and enhance and bring out flavor. And our words will often have all of those types of effects on the people around us. This, this imagery of being salty is a vivid description of what the truth of Christ does when it's communicated clearly by faithful Christians. Our words are to stand out. Our words are to confront. Our words are to testify to something different and counter and contrasting to the things that are received as truth by the world. Otherwise, we're wasting our opportunity, aren't we? Otherwise, we're failing in the mission we've been given. As Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Does that describe you as flavorless and bland, useless? Or are you the kind of person who has an effect on everything that comes into contact with you because that flavor rubs off. That salt spreads everywhere that you go. 
This idea of salty speech does not describe a church that's insulated from the world and keeps all the salt in the shaker. It describes a church that infiltrates the world with the truth of Christ. It describes a people ready and willing to engage the lost with grace but also with truth. A church that's not intimidated by the world, but a church that's able to hold its own, not bland, but potent, salty, because we have the transforming message of the gospel. This powerful truth that Paul says in Romans 1 is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's what we have. And it's to color everything that we do and everything that we say. If we want our speech to be salty, just like if we want our speech to be gracious, it means we need to be salty. It means we need to have this potent truth that has gripped us and spills out all over the place everywhere we go. The gospel, the truth of who Christ is and what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's not something we just look to tack on at the end of an otherwise secular conversation. Is that how you think of sharing Christ? We have all our normal conversations and then maybe it'll be awkward, but I'm just going to jump in and say, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven because here's what Jesus did? And that's great and we should do that. But I think Paul wants more than that from us. It's not just something we tack on to secular conversations. If we are salty, if we're saturated by Christ, if we are centered on Christ and gripped by the supremacy of Christ, that's going to flavor everything that we say and everything that we do. And that's what Paul urges us towards. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's that application of wisdom again. Knowing that we are sensitive to the person, sensitive to the moment, and ready to engage them with the truth that we possess. Paul's concerned not just about his ministry from prison in Rome, but with their public ministry in Colossae. And God has preserved this for us because your public ministry in Lawrence or Ottawa or Eudora or Baldwin, wherever you live, so that your public ministry makes an impact that will matter for eternity. You know, when we started, I suggested three ways that Christians tend to relate to the world. Withdrawal, assimilation, or wise engagement. Which one describes you? Which one describes you? Are you somebody who tends to run and hide from engaging and interacting with outsiders when it comes to the things of God? Or are you someone who goes along with the flow and has completely been swept up in doing the things the world does in the way the world does it? You kind of tack on Sundays, you know, to get a little Jesus in there sometimes. What describes you? Or are you the kind of person who is so consumed with Christ and his gospel that you speak words of grace and truth to those that you are around? That you wisely consider how each relationship, each interaction is an opportunity to represent Christ and, and convey Christ to the world around you. What describes you? Perhaps some of us today need to repent of our foolishness and seek to grow in wisdom. We need to pray for wisdom and adopt a holy urgency to make the best use of the time because no one knows if tomorrow will come. Some of us need to pursue heart change. Our words are not gracious. They're critical. They're biting. They're caustic. We need to pursue heart change. As we meditate on God's grace towards us, that will bring about change so that our words will reflect the grace of Christ. We need to pray 
for sensitivity to the opportunities around us, sensitivity to the people around us. That was Paul's burden for them and is God's will for us today. We want that to be our burden, that we would represent Christ in the world. We must demonstrate the supremacy of Christ in the way that we relate to outsiders. If we believe in the gospel, and if we've been changed by the gospel, then it's going to show. It's going to show. As we walk as redeemed sinners, among those who are still outsiders, let's seek to live lives that are marked by a Christ-centered wisdom. Let's strive to speak and act in a Christ-honoring manner and seek to convey a Christ-centered message. Will you join me in seeking to interact that way? We don't want to be a bunch of salt that's stuck in the shaker. And we also don't, don't want to be completely absorbed into the world around us. We want to be unique and distinct, to be salt and light in a world that is dark and decaying. Fathers, we consider your word. We're thankful today for your grace towards us. We who formerly were outsiders, we were lost, we were sinners, we were blind and in darkness, and your enemies, we were outside the promises of grace. And Lord, it's only because of your mercy and your grace that our status has been changed from outsiders to insiders, those who know you, those who have been adopted into your family and been forgiven and made new. We thank you, God, for your grace towards us. And I thank you, Lord, that it depends not on our efforts or our works, but on the finished work of Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to see people in the proper categories. Help us to see our brothers and sisters, not according to their socioeconomic status, not according to their ethnicity or their age or anything else. Help us to see one another as fellow heirs with Christ. And I pray that we would have the right view of those who are outside, not to see them as enemies, not to see them as an inconvenience, not to see them through eyes of, of envy and jealousy, wishing we could be like them. Help us to look at outsiders as those who need Christ, first and foremost. And I pray that you would increase our burden for the lost. Continue your work of grace in us so that we would speak gracious words in a gracious manner to share the hope of the gospel with those who need Christ. Lord, make our words potent with your gospel. Make us salty inside and out, so that our speech would infiltrate the world with your truth, so that we would remain distinct and holy and unique and separate from the world. Not so that we can hide from them, but so that we can be most useful as you continue your plan of redeeming sinners and adding them into your kingdom. So God, we pray that you would work in our hearts, grow us, change us, so that we can honor you as we seek to become like Christ. Amen.